You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Today's show is brought to you by Texture. Declutter your coffee table and access all of your favorite magazines right on your phone or tablet. To get your all-access pass to the world's most popular magazine titles, please visit texture.com slash break it down today. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make harder. Yeah. Welcome to the Break It Down podcast, folks. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're going to do any Christmas shopping, let me just get this out of the way. If you're going to do Christmas shopping, and I bet you are, uh, do it on Amazon.com and and shop through the link on my website on BreakItDownPod.com. Click on that link to go to Amazon. That's all you have to do, and then anything you buy there uh, will support this show. It'll help me out, and I actually get a kickback from that. So go ahead and bookmark that in your browser, and every time you shop on Amazon for Christmas and for the rest of the year, all next year, for everything you buy, anything, electronics, gifts, diapers, guitar strings, whatever, then... If you go to that link, it will help me and my show out, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you to all of you who have done so, so far. All right, so today on the show, I have Matt Pryor. Uh, I'm really honored and privileged to get to talk to people that I respect. It's, it's a really, really neat thing about having a podcast and an audience like you guys. I can talk to people that are that are cool, that I really want to talk to, and because of the audience that I have, they say yes. So Matt Pryor is the singer of the Get Up Kids. He also has a podcast called Nothing to Write Home About, and it's a part of the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. So if you haven't looked over there, tons of those shows are good. Uh, go to JabberjawMedia.com and see if you like all the other shows on there. But his show's great. He has a tons of good guests in, in the music scene. It's really good. I think you'll like his podcast a lot, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing him. He and I talk today. Um, so this is pretty straightforward. We just talk talk about him and his career and what's interesting to me about him. And uh, there's a whole bunch of shows over there on on Jabberjaw. So go to the website, JabberjawMedia.com. Uh in fact, I'm going to run a real quick commercial for a show that's really neat on there. It's called Metal Brainiac. So check this out. This is what we do. We're sharing promotion for each other. That's kind of the point of Jabberjaw is we wanted to put together shows and have them cross-promote and just share information about good shows with other good shows and kind of put them together. So anyway, this is my friend Matt Pikin. His show is called Metal Brainiac. Here's a little commercial for you. Growing up doesn't mean you need to outgrow heavy metal. And now for discerning metalheads everywhere, there's a podcast just for you. Metal Brainiac is the smartest half hour in heavy metal. There's no beer or bro talk, and we leave Satan at the door as we dive into serious conversations with top metal artists. We dig into the creative process and explore the challenges of expression when people can't make out the lyrics. I'm Matt Pikin, the host of Metal Brainiac, and you can find us every week on iTunes and wherever you find your favorite podcasts and also at MetalBrainiac.com. Also, i got to tell you guys a little bit more about the sponsor, Texture. Uh, you, you ever get frustrated because you search something on the Internet and you're trying to find out some good information on it, but guess what? It's a ton of just junk, a ton of, a ton of weird results, and not really good information on the topics that interest you the most, and so you're manually searching all over the Internet. Well, 
Check this out. If you want premium content and don't have time to waste finding it, there's Texture. It's the best way to read all of your favorite magazines anytime, anywhere. And I like it because magazines are great. I used to read them at the doctor's office and the dentist and I used to get them sent to the house. I used to subscribe to magazines because the quality of writing and the journalism and the articles and the stuff that's in there is much better is much better than what you get on, you know, random blogs and and search engine stuff that you get on the internet. Reading magazines is great, but the problem is obviously the magazines themselves and the access to them. So Texture is the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone and tablet. Hundreds of magazines. You can cherry-pick the articles that just like you most. You can bounce from magazine to magazine. And the best part is Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash break it down. Even better, how about this? Why don't you give Texture as a gift between now and December 31st? Think about that. A digital gift that you can give the people that you care about. It's simple. They'll like it. They'll get a lot out of it. And they'll think about you every time they read an, an article. Anytime they read an article in Rolling Stone or, or Runner's World or Road and Track or anytime they're reading National Geographic or GQ, whatever it is, get it for you. Get it for somebody else. Try it now for free. Go to texture.com slash break it down. And remember, it helps me out a ton. If you so much as click through and sign up for the free trial, a big deal for the Break It Down podcast. It's a big deal to me. And so please do that if you're interested at all. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk to Matt Pryor. Hit it. How many podcasts do you do? Just those two. Just those okay. two. Yeah. Well, I suppose we're rolling. So welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join us today. <laughs> we could talk about podcasting as much as we could talk about anything else. So we'll just start there if you like. Okay. Sure, man. Um, Whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, so I do the Bad Christian podcast, and on that one, you know, there's three hosts on there, and we have people mm-hmm. on, and we do a bunch of other stuff, and then have a guest on, and I just feel like it's really hard to get in depth without somebody else hijacking where I'm going with questions, or getting, you know, just popcorns around, and is really weird with a bunch of people together on a show, so I like yeah. doing this one where I can really take the time and spend, you know, conversationally back and forth, and like, you know, in depth with a person kind of thing. So that's why yeah, I do totally. two different ones. But I don't totally. know. I don't know if I have any ambition to do a whole bunch more. How about you? One's enough. One's enough of what? <laughs> podcast? Yeah. Well, actually, in the summertime, this is okay. This is the only thing that's dorkier than having a podcast in general is that I play on a kickball league. Yeah, in, that's dorkier. Yeah. Well, but get this. <laughs> I'm also on the board of directors of the Kickball League, <laughs> and and I'm one of the hosts of the weekly Kick Caw Valley Kickball League podcast. <laughs> that's really good. That's that's some rich stuff there, what dude. Is- if you ever if you ever come through Lawrence, Kansas, on a Sunday night in the summertime, it will blow your mind. I bet it's we're, fun. We're expanding the league to 36 teams. It's crazy no how many people play it. Is it much in the skill of a, of a thing, you know, like in it and kickball kind of designed to ha- for children to, to equalize, you know, so there you're not playing are, baseball? There are those that we like to refer to as the elite teams, uh-huh. and then there are those like my team, which are the fun teams, which okay. are really just there to hang out and drink beer and play kickball. So you can drink while you play, but what makes an elite, what makes you elite, just a long kick, kickers or what? No, just like people who are actually good at kickball. <laughs> take it seriously <laughs> so like yeah. our, our returning our returning champions uh for the last two years like they get to every game like two hours early and warm up goodness gracious. and then yeah they're real serious 
Well, so where are you in? Uh, where you have an off day today from your 20 year anniversary tour? Where are you? We are in Washington D.C. In D.C., very good. Where are you playing in D.C.? Uh, last night we played at the Black Cat. Oh, cool! Legendary that's why I'm a, I'm a little bit a uh, little raspy today. It was a really fun show, and we maybe had a little too much fun after the show too. So I'm a bit hoarse, which is good that we're having a day off. So yeah, that 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 is good. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about touring and all, all that kind of stuff first. But first yeah. of all, I was talking to you the other day when I spoke to you the other day and mentioned that we had done. Um, what we really have in common is that that we did our first record, the Emory first Emory record in with Ed. Eudora with Ed at Black Lodge, kind of thing. You know what? And, and I didn't even f- and you didn't even know that. Which I, I'm not saying you should, but I actually did know that. I had just forgotten because, like, yeah. there was a period where Ed was telling me because uh, I got out of that business. Uh, well, okay, so Get Up Kids broke up in 2005, and we bought uh-huh. the studio in 2003, and so I got bought out of that business when mm-hmm. the band broke up. And so I would just kind of see Ed periodically and he would tell me who he was recording. And uh, it all just kind of went in one ear and out the other, except for Limbeck. You know Limbeck? Yeah, I do. They're a Kansas band, right? No, they're from California, oh, but California they band. might as well be. Well, they recorded there. I remember that. Yeah, they recorded like two records there. Um, but yeah, so as soon as uh, I got off the phone with you, I was like, oh, crap, I totally knew that he recorded at the studio. Well, it was a it was a really interesting time, and it was a uh, you know we we kind of like came up for we're a little bit older, but we were way late getting started in music kind of thing. So we were in okay. our twenties, and we were into a bunch of late nineties in emo kind of stuff. That's how we got. That's what music we had gotten into. So Ed Rose. So where are you, where are you from? I'm from South Carolina originally. So we grew up in a. I grew up in a, like a farm. I mean, not a farm, but just super rural in South Carolina. So I never been, right. was around music or anything at where, all. Whereabouts in South Carolina? Greenville, in the upstate there, between Atlanta and okay. Charlotte. And so we just grew up in the middle of nowhere, really, and then had no access to anything punk, indie. I didn't even know what indie music was until I was in college and met some people that were from cities. I really didn't have any idea. So I played, <laughs> played guitar a little bit and didn't know there was anything that wasn't on the radio. So all of a sudden, when we were 20 years old, we got skateboards, learned to ollie, found out what indie music w- was, went to punk shows for the first time. Uh, really, yeah. le- obviously really, really late. So, but that was, uh, still that was in the late, I was like 98, 99 is when that was. Right. So that was kind of the music we got into there. And Ed Rose was doing just all this awesome stuff from Appleseed Cass. And mm-hmm. uh, I think he did Red a- Animal War and a bunch of Deep Elm bands that we thought were really cool, stuff like that. And so- I forgot about Deep Elm. We, yeah. uh, we, went, we just said, well, we, if we ever get a band and get good, we where we want to go record. So we saved up the money and went did that it was 2003 i think okay. when we did that and we weren't signed or anything we just knew what we wanted to do so we moved you to paid seattle. for it out of pocket yeah we moved to seattle after we graduated college because we took all this stuff seriously said let's do it so we moved to seattle and saved up some money wrote some songs and then drove out to kansas paid for it out of our pocket i believe we spent seven thousand dollars that we paid okay for the two weeks that we did that record there that and sounds was, about right it was super cheap. I mean, I thought did it was you guys stay at the in the time. you stay in that shitty apartment above oh, the studio? Oh, I didn't think it was shitty. I thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. Oh, God, that place is a dump. <laughs> if you look up uh, the girl and her, I don't know if it's her husband or partner or what, who bought mm-hmm. the studio, because we don't own it anymore at all, mm-hmm. uh, she does YouTube videos. I can't remember her name now, but she's like this Hawaiian girl that does like looping songs. Like she did a, mm-hmm. a 
Nirvana cover that got a bunch of like YouTube hits, but all of her videos are filmed at the studio. And it's just weird because it's like, oh yeah, that's that those are the floors that we put in or oh yeah, yeah that's that painting that we had commissioned. Or uh, they fixed up the apartment so it's like nice and classy and stuff. Oh, that's awesome. No, I just I have all good memories about it. But we that, the, that was, when we it was so it was so gross when James was going to record Reggie in the full effect there he refused to stay in the apartment unless, <laughs> unless Ryan cleaned the toilet. Well, that, it was it just had that one toilet. That's another story. But we got we got food poisoning while we were there. We went to the Mojo's Wing place out, out there and got mm-hmm. wings and all, we all got sick. And so we had to just wait in line to throw up in that toilet over and over. Again. Oh. It was the worst, worst thing in the world. But that's not disgusting. that's not your fault. But we recorded there. It was two thousand. No, I was already I was already out of the business. Yeah, you were by already out of there by that time. But it was a uh, Motion City had just finished, and then okay. oh no, it was, I think it was Motion City, then Rocket Summer, and then us were the three consecutive projects that oh, Ed had Summer. done. And so I, I all that I, name in a while. I, and I want you to help me understand Ed. What I'd love to know is if he ever said anything much about us. But he he was pretty okay with Motion City, but he trashed on Bryce from the Rocket Summer the whole time we were there. All he did was complain about Bryce the whole time. I mean, we were there. I don't, I can't remember exactly, except I, the whole time, <laughs> the whole time that was happening. I remember him saying that little shit from Dallas. Yeah, that's Bryce. That's what he was talking about. And and I was just like. Why are you still working with this kid? He's like, well, we need the money. <laughs> yeah, he said, uh, He said, well, see, the thing about, I always found about Ed, we were super green. We didn't know anything. We didn't know what yeah. we were doing. We had some good music, I think, at the time. Uh, it was our first record that, that did well. Well, did you have a there, good, but... did you have a good experience with him? Yeah. There's two, I... there's two Ed Roses. There's, there's, when he's interested in something and when he's not. <laughs> well, he can be, he can be a real bear when he doesn't, doesn't want to be there. I didn't get the feeling like he didn't like it or anything but i couldn't believe how i didn't find him nice at all or friendly nah. really he just isn't but i didn't care i, I was super into it because he was laser beam focused on doing a good job and it yeah, was he's, that was just he's, incredible he's very me. he's very good at his job but he wasn't I, he wasn't nice almost ever you know? <laughs> he, he can be ni- he can be nice like he's come on tour with us a couple times and like we've been recording together for jesus mm-hmm. 17 years or something like that so like We've gotten to be mm-hmm. as friendly as one can be. Yeah, and absolutely. So he's got a pretty sweet gig now. Have you heard about what he's doing right now? What he has the restaurant? No, no. He's a so our public library, uh, the Lawrence Public Library, got mm-hmm. this huge grant to build a recording studio that anybody in Lawrence can use. Amazing. Like if you're a, if you're a new band, it's just like a nice small Pro Tools studio, and they've hired Ed to run it. That's amazing. So good for him. It's it's basically like he's got like he doesn't have to do that like recording engineer hustle anymore. Yeah. Like he just has to like he has got a real job doing what he likes doing and it's this awesome resource that like if you start if you were in high school and you started a band, you could come record your demo for free. With Ed know? Rose. With Ed Rose. That's yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> but I learned so much from him. I think that that whole that it was just incredible. Like uh you know, he was so business. He was so good. He was so focused, and I just took so much away from that. Like half of all the stuff that I think I know now, yeah, I, I got from those two weeks of just looking over his shoulder. Of just well, I was he focused. he taught me. It taught all of us, but he taught me specifically how to how to record. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the only reason I know how to edit my podcast is because of all the years spent dealing with Ed and like him teaching me about Pro Tools and teaching me about how to get sounds and how to get levels and how to mix stuff and yeah, he's. 
in that regard, he's the biggest influence I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and it was like, you know, records like those ones I mentioned, not, I mean, and of course, uh, you guys, it's something to write home about. I listened to that. That was one of the first. But now here's the thing, though. Heard. We didn't, we didn't record something to write home about. Oh, okay. Ed. Everyone think, everyone thinks that we did. And it sounds like a record we would have made with Ed, but we actually made that in California. With I bet a guy you get that Chad. all the time. If I made that he mistake, get, I'm sure a lot of people. Do. He gets it all. The t- Ed gets it all the time. Okay, so you made what four minute mile with Ed then? No, nope, we did our first EPs with Ed, and uh-huh. then we did four minute mile with okay. Bob Weston in Chicago. So then at home about we did in California, and then we did the demos for on a wire with Ed, and then we recorded on a wire with this guy Scott Litt oh, in yeah, yeah. Connecticut. And then f- from then on, we're just like, this is stupid. We have like the sixth member of the band I basically see. right here. And so we did Guilt Show and then our last record, There Are Rules, we did with Ed. And then anytime there was ever like, you know, a compilation song or uh, mm-hmm. a live thing, like it was always, he was always, he's always been involved sure. in every, you know, somewhere down the line. Well, that might have been our mistake then, but I'm sure it's benefited Ed because I, I did, I know at least at some point we were under that impression that that was. Anyway, you guys were one of the. My point being, enough about this podcast is about you, not about Ed Rose. Although I enjoy the reminiscing there, um, <laughs> the something right home about was a big record to us. It's it's literally it's, it's probably weird because we're probably not that different in age, but it literally. How old was, are you? I'm 36. Yeah, I'm 38. Right, so we're almost the same age, and something right home about completed made it all the way down to rural South Carolina to town we went to college in and somebody found it in a record store or something like that and it's really honestly one of the very first indie records or emo records I ever heard it's like one of the first four records I ever heard that wasn't something mainstream or on the radio so, well, that's that's why we I still have a career to this day. <laughs> I know it. But I mean I wasn't like I said I was probably 20 years old at the time and you had already yeah. you know already had a long career going Well we started I mean we started this band when I was I guess 18 and you know we went on our first tour when I was 20 mm-hmm. so uh, yeah we, it, it's kind of interesting because we seem to just be like two to four years ahead of everybody except Braid and the Promise Ring right right <laughs> well I mean I, don't, I mean so I don't know exactly what you guys were listening to but to me what, what you guys did I, I mean I'm skewed because I don't have the good background like everybody else but to me I heard Sunny Day Real Estate uh, Get Up Kids, Appleseed Cast, and I can't even remember uh, what else it would have been at the Pedro the Lion, like all at the same time, mm-hmm. and said, okay, Oh, I was emo, just listening to you your know. your uh, Bad Christian with Bazan. Oh, yeah. I just Yeah, I was just listening to that. I've never met that guy. Oh, really? Yeah, we, we have a lot of mutual friends, but I've never actually met him. Well, he's real easy to meet and talk to, so if he does a living room show, just hit him up or hit me up. Yeah, I should you, try you and get him, on, yeah, get him on my podcast. Oh, definitely. He's, he, always, he says yes to everything podcast-wise. <laughs> um, don't everybody out there with a podcast immediately hit him up, though. He probably will say no. But if you, if you know him, I'm sure he'll say yes or have any connection to him. But yeah, so that was the, the first music we ever heard. So I just, you know, the thing that was, that was really profound to me is I heard bands doing stuff and the, the distinct thought i had about it is wait a second you can do whatever you want to you can just mm-hmm. do whatever you want to like you know the songs where you do a quiet song and a hit a loud song or an energetic song and then the acoustic song and then it kicks in later and i don't i mean all those things just didn't i mean they just blew my mind all at the same time kind of thing and so well I, you can kind of do it you can kind of do it. like we've there's an arrogance to our band that we always just kind of uh, 
have done what we liked mm-hmm. and we're kind of like really didn't like we're appreciative of the people that like our band a lot uh-huh. but we're not doing it for them sure <laughs> you know what i mean like and we've always kind of had that attitude and so sometimes that's been to our benefit and sometimes it's been to our detriment I when, think that's the way you got to be. I mean, in the long run, yeah. to, to to look back and try to do, like, think about it this way. It doesn't make any sense for somebody to make something based on what, based on feedback, really. It really doesn't right. make sense because that's not how you got ever listened to in the first place. In order to begin a creative thing, you it requires you to do something that doesn't exist yet really, to be mm-hmm. of any value. So I think Henry Ford or somebody said, if, I, if I'd give my customers what they wanted, I'd give them a faster horse. I mean, that's a business thing, obviously, <laughs> but you have to be able to, to create something means you have to be ahead, really. I think to, he probably also said, he said some mean things about the Jews, too. Yeah, yeah that too. <laughs> <laughs> From what I understand. But you know what I mean? You have to be ahead, and that's what you said you guys were, and that's that's exactly mm-hmm. right. You're ahead of other people. I don't, I don't so. know if we're... I wouldn't... I wouldn't that you said that. I wouldn't say we were ahead. I just said... We just did what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in our mind, we were we were wearing our influences on our sleeves. Yep. They were just bands that you that didn't get that popular didn't enough to to make it to rural South Carolina. Well, you know? to you, what's a, like I'm going to just say to to me, Get Up Kids is an emo band. So when I say emo, I mean Sunny Day Real Estate, Get Up Kids, stuff like that. I mean, not that those I'm, are even the same. Page of the line, I'm, like I said, that's what I mean. But what is it? What would you say are emo bands? Do you you say uh, it's like a generation before you guys? I, I don't really. And like this question comes up from time to time. And I, I'm kind of realizing now, especially now that my, I have a 13 year old daughter. Uh-huh. And like her and her friends like love the term emo. Yeah. And it's when I was, you know, when we started touring, it was a derogatory term. Yeah. It was I something that, that like hardcore kids call it like fucking yeah. emo pussies. Exactly. You know? And. Uh, so that's just kind of weird, but honestly, I, th- I think it's kind of like saying punk rock. It just means something different, sure, to everybody at every generation, and it's it's kind of a stupid term. I've always thought because like all music is emotional. If it's not emotional, then it's crap, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Beethoven is emotional. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I was just like, it just I never thought like it was a terribly creative word, but you know, I'm gonna be saddled with it for the rest of my life. So, so, so you don't you re- you reluctantly accept emo as a as a description of you. Yeah, but I was angrier about it 15 years ago than I and I've 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 given up. <laughs> <laughs> well, this I feel the same way. The way I first thought about emo was I liked I was in, super into the name. I thought that was really neat everything whatever. Then we come along and do what we we do and then people call that screamo, which I find very yeah. derogatory, but I accept it. Uh, jokingly, I just I just take it. We're we're, we're scream, screamo embodied, which to me but just sounds heavier, derogatory. But it's just heavier because the emo thing, I think, is all about the lyrics. Yeah, like it's not. You know what I mean? And I, I think that the screamo thing is just sort of like the heavier cousin yeah. or little little brother because it kind of came after we did. I don't think it's derogatory. Yeah, but I, mean, I think the thing that you're labeled as unknowingly or put in the category of uh, always is going to feel a little derogatory. So to me, Screamo yeah. does feel silly because I'm like, well, these Screamo bands, they're just like... Oh, I didn't say it wasn't silly. You know. I just said it wasn't, it wasn't derogatory. <laughs> and so, yeah, people tend to want to shed the, the label put on them, I'm sure. But, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if... Uh, I'm sure... It, for you, emo is certainly unavoidable. But your your daughter likes music that she describes as emo, and what would that be now? Uh, well, I just took her and a bunch of her friends to go see Frank Iero, who used to play in mm-hmm. uh, My Chemical Romance, 
and he the, he was just on my podcast last week. Yeah, and, I heard that one. It was good. But uh, yeah, it was just you know she'll be like, "Do you know the guys in Fallout Boy?" And I'm like, "Uh, sorta," mm-hmm. you know. And she's like, "You know everybody," and I'm like, "Ah, okay." <laughs> I mean, the music industry is really not that big, so. No, uh, it's definitely not that big. By I mean, proxy, I know. I mean, technically, I'm one one person removed from Prince because a guy I toured with was Prince's guitar tech. That's amazing. Well, I mean, if you if you get to count it that way, then then I bought one. I'm only I'm really close by proxy to Weezer because first time I saw you guys was on tour with Weezer and whatever that was ninety nine. You know what? You're actually closer by proxy to Weezer than I am because I toured with them and never met them. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Did you you never got to see them or anything? Like I, I, I always make the joke. The whole time, I make the joke. They're the only band I've toured with for a month and never met. <laughs> that is really good. I've heard of uh, other bands. Like I think Amberlin was on tour with Smashing Pumpkins, and it was the same thing. Like I don't know if they met them. Maybe said hey to them in a catering line or something, but not. I don't even think so. So, but that was. Uh, that I can was, tell you. I can tell you a ton of story. I can tell you a ton of stories about that. But I feel like I've just gotten into this like. I'm the guy who talks shit on Weezer all the time. I think. <laughs> well, I'm into it. Weezer's a band that I really like, and I knew who you guys were at the time, and I discovered Ozma, who opened up on that. Mm-hmm. But what was that, 1999 or 2000? That was, was 2001, it? like January. Oh, 2000, January 2001. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. And it was just, it was weird because we opened for Green Day for two weeks, and then we opened for Weezer for a month. And that, that was all like within the span of like three months, and people still to this day are like, that was the first time I ever heard you guys. Because, I mean, we, we, Tried to bring it because, like, Weezer at the time they were just like standing there when they played. So yep. we're like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, get old school hardcore on these motherfuckers. We're gonna jump around. Yeah, it was it was incredible, especially for like a, a half arena or arena, whatever it was. Yeah. It was really it was a lot of energy. Also, the notable thing was I saw, I guess it was Ryan had just uh, two. He had like two beers, set two or three beers, sitting down by his hi hat and just would drink them between songs and at that time mm-hmm. I'd just been start we just started playing in, we were just playing in bands and stuff like that and I could never have imagined drinking and playing music at the time like I remember do thinking you, how crazy you drink? that was oh I'd, I'd always drink before every show a decent okay. amount now you know but I at the these, time I, I had these... no possible understanding of how somebody yeah. could do that like an aerobic thing and just sit there and drink beer he'd be super it's sweaty not a, and, it's not a know. good idea <laughs> <laughs> well I do it now I, I, I'll drink a little bit before the show and I'll put two beers on my amp and you can knock, yeah. knock one or two out during the show a lot of times now yeah. so I think I, I thought that was the, the strangest thing I'd ever seen when, when I first saw it well the, li- the last couple shows I've been drinking throat coat with whiskey in it that's, that's yep. my that's my, my lead singer <laughs> lead singer drink of choice I don't think that's bad people like to knock that and say well your alcohol drugs you out or whatever but I think the effect of that is so minor compared to probably the numbing effect of it and the mental loosening effect of it and the, yeah. the, the burning effect of it so I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do as a, as a singer Oh, I'm losing you. You're turning into a robot. Uh oh. All right. Well, I'm recording. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, you sound good. I, I, I'm, I hear you fine. And if you're recording on your end, we'll, I'll get it put together somehow here. So hang in. There. I don't mind repeating something if you need me to do it. No, no. I can, I can hear you. You just sound like a robot. Okay. Um. So, on that. So, so, dude, give me a couple of stories. At least one story about, uh, you know, talking shit on Weezer. Uh. Well. Okay. So we played in Kansas City. Uh, it was about three weeks into the tour. We played in Kansas City, and it was at <clears throat> Memorial Hall, which is this, um, uh, it's like 3,500, uh-huh. kind of like, but it's kind of historic for us. Like, some of the guys saw Nirvana play there back in the day. I saw 
you know, uh, one of the first dates my wife and I, my wife and I ever went on was seeing the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins, and Pearl Jam there, and it's just kind of like a historic place for us. And uh, so we knew all the people that were running the show, and one of which was our friend Jackie, and she uh, she cut off our beer because she didn't want us to get too drunk for our hometown show. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the runners was talking to Brian Bell. Uh, Brian Bell said something to my then girlfriend, now wife. And one of the runners like, you know that's Matt from the Get Up Kids' girlfriend, right? And we had been on tour with this band for three weeks, and he just turned to her and went, who are the Get Up Kids? <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. That's really... What, did he say something like jerky to her in the first place? No, he was just, you know, kind of chatting. I mean, I yeah. I don't want to say he was hitting on her, but that's yeah. kind of what he was doing, I guess. But somebody was just informing him who that girl was, and he didn't, yeah. even, he didn't even ring a bell. The best, the, one, the best one is that, so one of the, I don't know if you remember, but one of the uh, sponsors on that tour was a digital camera company, uh-huh. and they had four life-size cutouts of the guys in Weezer so that you could, quote-unquote, get your picture taken with the band. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the tour, we stole them, the life-size cutouts, Yeah. and uh, a couple of the guys rented a limo and drove around Las Vegas. We have a bunch of this video footage of them driving around Las Vegas with, quote-unquote, rivers. And like having him talk to people on the street, and it was—it's just hilarious because it's just—it's just a motionless cardboard cutout. I don't know. I guess it sounds funnier than maybe it is. <laughs> no, no, that's really good. I mean, stuff like that's always good, but prank, pranky kind of stuff like that—stuff you don't, you know—I don't think people really understand the uh, atmosphere w- being on tour with a bunch of guys because it's one person does something and there's almost there's ne- nobody to ever bring it back to reality you just keep on going it's like being around a bunch of people where you go oh watch this okay yeah. well I'll, I'll see that and i'll raise it and there's nobody ever ever back oh, it's, so. it's kind of an extended adolescence you know it is for sure this was on that tour what was ozma like were they cool yeah they were real cool they were just super green because yeah. they had never they had never been outside of california and we were playing in like february in like new england and mm-hmm. so they were like snow ba- and we're like how do you drive in snow and I'm like, well, uh, go slow. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, but they were great. I just saw um, what was the guitar player in that band's name? I don't I can't know their names. I just saw him at Riot Fest. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. No, I, I do like that. I, I became a fan of that. I never heard of them, but I became a fan of them. I have all the records I think since then. But yeah, really good band. Yeah, they are um, good. did so at that time. Was that like what? Could you have possibly thought about your career trajectory? You must have thought, well, here we go. Or did it feel uh, it, stupid being on that tour? In that particular moment, uh, of by the time that tour came around, cause that, so you figure something at home about comes out in August of 99. Mm-hmm. So basically all of 99, all of 2000, and all of 2001, we were on tour. So that Weezer thing is like the last tour we did in 2001. And I was I, I wanted to turn it down. Because I was they're like, no, you because they actually we got the gig because they did like a fan vote of uh-huh. like who they should take out, and the, they selected us, I guess. Crazy. And and uh, well, because we had always been like, you know, wearing our influences on our sleeve and talking about how much we like, you know, the first two Weezer records, and this is before the their third record had come out. It's kind of like their reunion tour, and. Uh, uh, but by that time, I was so burnt. Like, we had been on, ro- on the road for, like, two and a half years, like, all over the world. And it was just like, I don't want to open for this fucking band. And, but, uh, you know, we got enough money that we could have a bus, and so that was good. But, yeah, it's, there's some 
there's some strange home movies from that tour. Like James bought a bear suit and he would just like wear a bear suit all day. And like he's like dancing on the bus, drinking a beer, wearing a bear suit. Just strange <laughs> shit like that. Well, that I mean, that's in, that's uh, pretty remarkable to, to, to be in a place where you weren't even interested in doing a tour with Weezer, who you just said was one of your obvious even influences. I mean, was it... Uh, did you were you just kind of getting burnt on touring and doing that whole thing or or yeah and it was also just like playing you know i mean it, it's lightning in a bottle as far as like making that record having it be on vagrant having vagrant be super hungry to like go to the next level yep pushing us and then us having this work ethic that we had which was like if you're not playing you're paying yep. so it's like we're you know uh, that's the tour that I the first tour on that record was when I learned that if you're going to do a 75 day tour, you'll lose your voice after 65 shows. Yeah. Well, I mean, were, were you thinking of your career then at that point though? Did you think we're going to go to the next level and be bigger and bigger or, or, or you were starting to not even enjoy what you were doing at that time? Uh, no, or at both, that time, at that time, so like 2001, I was just burnt on that particular touring cycle and was just tired and wanted to write new stuff and i had started doing uh the new amsterdam's as like a side mm-hmm. project because yep. like uh, we weren't writing that whole two years and so um yeah i, I don't know it's weird like i don't i don't think i thought of quote on my quote unquote career until uh kind of recently like in the last <laughs> 10 years yeah, because it was just like uh, you know you're just in a band. You were just in it, just present with it. Yeah, it's just like uh, it's a hard thing to explain. To, I mean, there's a, a great quote that Steve Earle said where he was, or no, even okay. There's a couple of them. There's like uh, we get paid money to do something that we would do for free, mm-hmm. and that's how we always treated it. I mean, we had a work ethic because we come from you know the the Bible of Fagazi, and it's just like you know you you work hard and you save money if you can and try to you know leave everything on the stage if, if you're even on a stage leave everything on the basement floor if that's what you're playing yep and uh so yeah i think i don't know maybe we started thinking about it as a career after that because then we our third record we actually got like a lot of money to make it yeah and and vagrant and we had like a real producer and like you know he had done like REM and Incubus, yeah, Scott Litt. Scott Litt's a big time, yeah. It must have been a really expensive yeah. record, but obviously the it, whole thing was a bunch of money. Were you making money already touring and stuff and like starting to, you know, do well yeah. by houses well, that, and do that kind that of thing? That was the, yeah, that was the thing. Like our very first tour was just going to be that summer and then everybody was going to go back to college and we made money on our first tour and we're just like, you know what, let's, let's ride this out. Like let's, like this can't last forever. So there's all, you can always go back to school. Yeah. And, uh, it just kept going and going and going. And around the time we did On a Wire, yeah, like I had gotten married and uh, my wife was pregnant and we bought a house. And then, yeah, I think everybody bought a house in that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people started getting married. And I was the only one who, I, I started having kids way before everybody else did. But that's a funny thing, the buying house thing, because every band that makes any money, there's a, just a certain time period. Like it's, it's re- yeah. always within a few months where everybody in the band buys a house within the same calendar year. You know what I'm talking well, you about? Kind of, the first I think it's band, kind of a, you, know, you never make like a, money, then you make money, and then all of a sudden, yeah. every all five people in the band buy a house, kind of thing. Well, because then all five of you are kind of comparing notes because you're all right. making the same money. That's right. And it's just like 
Oh yeah, he just bought a house. Oh yeah, that's a good investment. Oh, he's working with a financial right. advisor. Yeah. It's like, what's a financial advisor? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a weird. It's a phase. It's like a life phase for bands. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's not that way for other people exactly, but it's like a lot of times the the, the marriage is coming a wave and the buying house is coming a wave. But the buying house well, is always part- attached to uh, it's X amount of time after you start making enough money yeah. to do it, and people say, "Well, you got to buy a house then." And then everybody. Well, I think it's part it. of that extended adolescence thing because like most people with normal jobs start thinking about their retirement because it comes out of their paycheck. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't, we didn't I, I only in the last couple of years considered, my wife's like, well, what are you gonna do when you retire? And I'm like, Reti- I'm in a band. Like, yeah. I don't, we don't retire. I might not tour, <laughs> you know, yeah. but there's no. Yeah, that, that's a weird, that's a weird one. I mean, it's just that, uh, that whole thing that the, uh, I mean, you know, some people don't intend to be in a band for for life, though. I mean, most I people, most people don't, like you said. And then at some point, you look back and you go, "Wait, am I?" And I guess a lot of people wrestle with it all for a, a big long period. But are you in? Are you out long term? Kind of thing. So I always think that's interesting to find if people are just hanging in there and as long as they can, and they they know they're going to go somewhere, or if they well, feel like they're it, wasting time or what. Yeah. If we hadn't gotten to a certain comfort level and success level, I don't think we would have kept doing it you know what i mean like yeah it just that like <clears throat> you know when you're making enough money that you can live on a bus and still come home with good money then yeah. i mean it's hard it's, to quit that unless you have acute personal problems well or, or unless you have like uh, a higher uh, some other calling you know mm-hmm. what i mean like uh, i've known guys who've quit the life to go backpack through india you know what i mean like it just sort of <laughs> Well, what would be going straight for you? I mean, what would it be if it was like not podcast, not entertainment, not music? What would that be? Um, well, yeah, a couple years ago, I decided I didn't want to do music anymore. I had gotten there seemed to be phases in my life and quote unquote career where I get real dark and uh-huh. just want to be like, I can't do this anymore. Like, you know, I I, I can't I can't deal with the the judgment of mm-hmm. people I can't deal with touring I can't deal with uh, you know I'll, I'll always make music I've always said I'll always make music but I'm just like maybe I don't want this to be my job you know maybe and so I went and I worked on a farm for a mm-hmm. while and I worked on a food truck because those are the two things like cooking and, and farming and, and being connected to to the earth uh-huh. are uh, really important things to me the, the problem is is that when you're 34 or 35 and you decide you want to become a farmhand you're getting paid like eight dollars an hour yeah. <laughs> when you have three kids it doesn't really pan out yeah so i mean if i could i try to like find and that's when i started getting into to podcasts pretty hardcore because i'm just like sitting in the middle of this field picking radishes listening to mark Marin all day mm-hmm. and i'm like well shit man i can do that. he's just talking to his friends i can do i know famous people i can talk to them and uh that's when I kind of decided to like, okay, let's have this balance. So like, you know, we're doing Get Up Kids Tour and then come, I'm going out in February and then come March, I'll be planting, you know, prepping the garden and planting stuff and we'll go from there. And in the summertime, I want to play kickball and not tour as much. And then, I don't know, I'm trying to trying to think of touring as like a seasonal thing. Sure. And yeah. It's different. It's different now because you can really kind of design a custom career for yourself. I mean, you have to get to a certain level, I suppose. You can't do that out of the gate, but you know, well, and you have to have a certain amount of hustle too. I right. Mean, 
it used to just be like your hustle had to be like you need to be on the road for 200 days out of the year. Yeah. And now it's a different hustle. Well, yeah, you can proportionally do the amount that, that you want to do for the expected outcome. You don't have to make sure you sell over 50,000 records or consider it a flop. You can just say, hey, we can sell 20,000 records, so therefore I can put this much time into that of my life. Yeah, you know, my choice. Well, you, you could put out a Christmas album every year and spend 80 hours on it and sell it to 800 right. people, and that would be valid. You know, that'd yeah. be reasonable well, for and you to do. It's an interesting thing because, like, people from my um, – excuse me, my generation of bands and before have, and I had this too, have a hard time wrapping their head around this. Cause it's kind of like we make records, we tour, we sell merch. Yeah. Like maybe you might license a song, but that's really random. And, and like with me, like the things that I do, whether it's the podcast or doing like custom downright songs or doing mm-hmm. stage at web shows or any of that stuff, they're kind of like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, because it's a different, I can't just go on tour for 200 days. I, sure. you know, I and miss enough as it is. And so like, we have these conversations because like some people that I know are like, oh, you don't want to be like a web concert guy. Like that's super cheesy. And I'm like, why? Like we're, I'm playing for people in Brazil. I'm not going to fly yeah. to Brazil, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's direct results. Like you do, a, yeah. you do this, or you release this yourself, or you do your podcast. I mean, the numbers or the revenue and the feedback is instant. But mm-hmm. it, but with the traditional system, with touring year round on the big cycles or whatever, all you're doing is listening to a bunch of people telling you all the stuff that you need to do, and then they say, "Well, trust me, it'll benefit you in the long run." But there's no real yeah. connection to why you do this radio show for free or why you go have to do these interviews or there's not any real connection to it. So when you're doing the kind of stuff like this or stage it or uh, self-release something, it, the, the results are both immediate, rewarding, and incentivizing for you to do more of what people are enjoying and what's working. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that about it. That's, and, that's yeah, new. You get, you get instant feedback. You know? Right. I mean, that's what you're saying. It's just, it's, I don't know. I, I just, uh, it's just, it's weird too to be on this particular tour because this is very old school. This is, uh-huh. we're playing, we're playing old songs to an older audience and, well, not actually, that's not entirely true. There's been a lot of young, like twenty somethings at these shows, but um, it's it just like this is like it's probably why I'm a little bit burnt now and ready to go home. Even though we've only been out for two mm-hmm. weeks, I'm just like, okay, this is I I celebrate this. This is part of my life. This used to be the only thing in my life besides my wife, mm-hmm. and now it's not. It's just a part of my life. You know what I mean? The same way. Absolutely. The same way the podcast is a part of my life or the kickball is a part of my life. Yeah, no, I think that's totally, I think it's great. I mean, and and so, I mean, for what it's worth, I really identify with a lot of the things that you say that sometimes people will look at you and say, oh, you're jaded or you don't want to be on tour. This I, I really admire a lot of the way that you think about it because I find it at least to be kind of more honest. So... Well, and I'm not, find a, I'm not putting the words in to, your mouth, but you say some, yeah. you know, that you don't love touring, right? For instance, no, and I mean, I, I like traveling and I like performing. Uh-huh. I do not like being away from my family. If I could make enough money mm-hmm. that my wife didn't have to have a job and we could homeschool the kids and we just go on tour, then I, I don't know. The grass is always greener. I might sure. hate that too, but, and I don't, I don't hate touring. It's just. I I'm it's hard it's yeah. hard on me in both emotionally and physically and um 
But it's, you know, I mean, nobody yeah. loves every aspect of their well, job. Right. But what I'm saying is I want to identify with you there because I, fi- I believe that uh, I believe that other people kind of tend to be a little bit fake when they say how much they love everything. It's interviews and in media. You nah, know, I, and I, like, I've, been, I've been that guy before, like back in the day, and I just kind of got to a point where I was like, you know what, fuck it. Right, it's not better. Like, I mean, I, I'll, I didn't, like on this last tour we did, I was... How long was the tour? It was three weeks long, and we normally do two weeks at a time. We're really lucky that we can headline yeah. tours and design it that way. But we did three weeks, and I kind of feel the same way. It's not, I enjoyed a lot of things about it, but I have to admit, and this is the thing that I don't think most people would normally say, was the least, my least favorite part of most of that time, of those, like a, an individual day there, would be that time when sometimes when I had to get ready and go on stage at 10, 15 and play mm-hmm. something really, really loud music for 50 minutes. That honestly is probably the least thing that I liked about that day. And that sounds terrible, but it's, it's true. And I'm not sure exactly why it is other than, you know, you get in there, you load in, you do stuff, and then you have all this time to kill, and it gets super late, and I get up early normally and drive and stuff <laughs> like that. And so the, the most tired that I could ever be and want to go to bed is about 10 o'clock, you yeah. know, Uh well, and you have you have, have kids, to get right? Play. Yeah, I do. I have a daughter, and Toby's got three kids, and okay. Dave has four kids. I mean, so. it's tricky how you have to go from like dad hours yeah. into into really band hard. hours, and it's just like I I'm gonna get home on Thursday, and you know probably have gone to bed at two thirty at night mm-hmm. the night before, and you know my kids are still gonna need to get up at six to go to school. Yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. But sometimes it's the last thing I want to do is that loud shit at ten well, at a time when I want to go to bed. But that I, that's hard. I, I would say for fans here, but I think most people they would just no matter what say how much they like it and they wouldn't really admit it. So I just think that I respect that about it because I think the people that are kind of fake about it, you don't you don't definitely don't always love it. And also, yeah. it's not bad. I mean, it's a job and you like. Well, it. and then There's you can sometimes you it, get on sometimes you get on stage and like the monitors are fucked up and you yeah. just it just ruins your goddamn day. You know, you yeah. just like. Or uh, somebody, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm on a bit of a good buzz right good, now good. because uh, our show in DC last night was a ripper, Excellent. and it was like it's almost like why do we even continue the tour after this show? Yeah. This is like the best show. <laughs> what um, about the talking to the fans part? Like, do you, do you enjoy? Well, I that don't. I don't do it. Is? I don't do it on Get Up Kids tours because I'll lose my voice. But like, whenever I play like acoustic shows or. New Amsterdam shows, then yeah. I always go to the merch table. But I just can't, I can't physically scream like that for an hour and then yep. talk over the house music oh, to a yeah. bunch of people for an hour yeah, and that, then be expected to do it again tomorrow. You know, yeah, that long talking is really is really difficult. We do living room shows and stuff like that, and when you do that, we wind up showing up at five or six o'clock. You meet people, you talk to them like a party where you talk kind of loud because it's mm-hmm. loud. Then we either do a podcast live sometimes, or we do a, a, do music. Either way, so you sing or talk for another hour and something, and then you hang out for another hour and something and talk to everybody after because everybody there you're going to talk to. So right, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm actually you spend I'm, seven hours, you know, five, four or five hours talking in a straight. Wow. So that's I'm actually going to start looking into that. Next year, because I'm going to do another solo record, and I kind of want to like explore the living room thing. More. I think you'll really enjoy it. I mean, I think I've done it a couple like times, and it it was 
uh, I had both good and bad experiences with it, but I think I'm in a good headspace now where I can do it. Well, for me, the counter to doing the loud rock show, I think part of it is musically. It's like we play with a click, and it's loud, and it's organized, mm-hmm. and it was always exactly the same. It feels real mechanical. On the other hand, playing a living room show or if we do a VIP set that's acoustic, it's really so satisfying to me. And so a living room show falls in that category. It is so much more musically satisfying to sit there, maybe even without a microphone, and hear yeah. yourself play and hear yourself sing and not coming out of speakers it's coming out of the instruments itself and it's not a production and it's like musically i enjoy that every single time like i love the sound of it and the playing and maybe that just means you, i'm old right it's old it's too uh, loud or whatever just, well, i don't maybe. think so but i think it's I, just like, satisfying we, the times that we've played to a click with get up kids it's been way more rigid i mean yeah. we we're playing the same songs every night but we've been playing them for so long and we've been playing together for so long that <clears throat> it is still fun because we really are just kind of um, without a net, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And then like the, some of the stage banter or like, uh, you know, dealing with people who are too old to be stage diving. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. There's something about... That sounds fun. There's something about Get Up Kids shows. I always tell people that like there are no songs that I'm sick of performing but there are songs that I'm si- I'd never want to practice again, right? For the rest of my life, yeah. Like if we had to play, I, I I still can't stand "Holiday" anymore. The first song on something to write home about. I just it just wrecks my voice every time I sing it, and it just. Uh, but then we play it and people sing along and it's great. Yeah. But then if we haven't played together for six months, we're like we should probably run the set before we play Riot Fest and like. Yeah. No. God. Well, so there's some, there's a, the, what you're saying, though, that I'm hearing is still that the improvisational and the unplanned and the spontaneous things, whether it be off the click or uh, improvised parts or hecklers or stage we banter, try to that's make, the that, exciting part about, about it. Yeah, that's, that's something that we've, part. we've always done, that Get Up Kids have always done. We've always been real, like, we're just, it's, it's, it's a very, it's hard to explain. It's like, we're just like five guys that are each good at something different, mm-hmm. and when we come together... We know that no one's going to drop the ball completely, and we have kind of a uh, like a internal language that's almost like a series of glances and uh-huh. raised eyebrows. <laughs> and then it's just I don't know. There's just something about it, and then just also having people sing along and stuff. I think mm-hmm. is. But the times that we've done it back in the day, like uh, where everything was like real strict, we were all on in ears, and Ryan was playing yep. to a click. Uh, it was. It felt really forced right. to me. Right. I mean, I, so, we've done that, that. Done all that too, and now getting farther and farther away from it. I feel like, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but the the next generation of bands from the last five and t- even ten years, it start. It got so rigid, and everybody has perfect road cases and perfect scrims mm-hmm. and placed. Every, that is becoming more and more distasteful to me. Like it just seems like the well. Worst. That's what I like about this whole quote-unquote new wave of emo the fourth wave they're calling mm-hmm. it now and so it's bands like into it over it pup modern baseball mm-hmm. uh beach slang um is it's all it's like that wave of that kind of like super major label interest uh you know alternative press ironed hair uh everybody has brand new road cases everybody has a brand new van like people starting bands because they want to be famous. That's right. Yeah, that's a big divide there too. That that has now inspired this next generation of bands to go, ew. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we just want to play, you know, 
Thank we goodness. Just wanna, really? Yeah, we just want to be. I mean, the, and they're good. They're good bands. I mean, it's not like it's they're any less professional. They're just like, no, we just we just go and we do our thing. It's not. We're not trying to be famous. We're just trying to have fun playing music. Yeah, I think that's an important designation that I think happened. I mean, I almost want to say the time frame on that was in the late 2000s where I'm sure that when we started and bands before us, I know that the main focus was the music that you were creating is why you wanted to be in a band. And then I started to notice it, or maybe I just became aware of it. I'm not sure. But then I started, because I started getting into recording and engineering and working with other Mm -hmm. bands, and I, I could... Like they'd be in the studio, and contrary to me, like laser beaming every single thing I could learn possibly, and caring about every note on the guitar and bass and what was Ed was doing. I notice when I'm recording these bands in the studio that they're like, I tell them, okay, well, why don't you do this on bass, or do you want to do this or that or whatever? And they're like, yeah, whatever, dude. And it's like, how could you be so laid back or not care about recording your album? That's the seems like the most important main thing. But for sure, these guys are a little bit more interested in their their band being. You know, the the it's like the music was a means to an end, so they could be yeah. in a band and be on stage and have maybe even have a career or whatever. And that that to me always struck me as super foreign. I it, think that's it, the birth of that that mentality is, yeah, is the fact that you want it, to be in a band more than you want to create music. We used to say about, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm trying not to talk <laughs> shit on anybody. No, it's all right. Public. I want to I want to be your safe place for that, man. I got your back. It's okay. <laughs> I know, but we're recording this, so uh, I'll tell you later. Um, yeah, that's actually around the time that I started, kind of around the time you guys started, it sounds like, is when I started to kind of check out yeah. from the scene. And I know that there's still good bands, and like I, I, I meet them now, uh, like through the podcast and you know now through you guys, like where it's just like, I maybe got out right before it jumped the shark, you know, yeah. and it kind yeah. of got into that, uh, you know, it, it, I did a couple of tours where and it really depressed me it was like playing solo and drinking too much and just being like who the fuck are these guys and like right like uh these like 22 year old kids are like their first tour and they're bitching about how they don't have a guitar tech uh-huh. and i'm like god damn it yeah. <laughs> it's just like exactly but I think it's because they see themselves as the the destination is the stage for yeah. or or the or the or the atten- magazine or the magazine of the attention or or the there's some weird thing versus the the I know it's about the music for us because I just found a picture somebody just sent me a picture of us standing outside of Black Lodge Studio in 2003. Mm-hmm. You cannot believe how bad we looked. I'll, I'll find the picture <laughs> and post it. It's hilarious. Like it was just not like I remember back in that time frame. I've never even had considered that the way I looked. Would, could even matter for making music. Like, it hadn't crossed my mind, clearly. Yeah. Oh, like, that didn't I, start, you know, it didn't didn't even, start I never happening until, like, 2003, right. 2004. Like, I never even thought... I remember when we got signed and Tooth and Nail even were like, well, could you, like, maybe just get some tighter jeans or wear some black T-shirts? I mean, you guys look terrible. Like, I was like, what... Why would, <laughs> I would just... I was like, why would that even matter? You know, and then I understand that more so. Now, of course... Visual you guys are not. You guys aren't with it. Tooth and Nail anymore, are you? No, we release all our own stuff. We were with them okay. for a bunch of records and had a, had a good, really good run with them and everything. But we do Did our own really? thing. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have any problems at all. We we uh-huh. always got along really good. And um, I would be glad to talk about it if we didn't. But they 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 we had a. We were in the era where the bands were taken care of, or we did well enough. I don't know whatever whatever it was. We always had a pretty good time with them, but obviously, there's nothing like releasing your own music these days. Mm-hmm. So we we do it ourselves, and we even run through Bad Christian, a, a, a label where we release other people's music in a co-op kind of way. So we we do distribution and everything, marketing. And now, is there still that kind of like 
like I remember because and I, I didn't really learn about the kind of Christian punk rock scene until we toured with MXPX back in the day. Yeah. And how there was almost like two different record sales, like mm-hmm. two different kinds of scent. Like there was something about like MXPX had a gold record, but they didn't have a that, gold record. That's right. The, so Something the like sound that. scans were, I don't even know if it is, I don't even pay attention to it really, but the is, sound like, scans... Is that even still a thing? <laughs> I don't even know if it is or not, and it seems to not even matter. But at that time, the sound scan would report the sales that would come from Christian distro, meaning that it was in Christian bookstores or other Christian right. outlets. They wouldn't count in the mainstream uh, sound scans, which is weird. Why? Why wouldn't they count? I, I don't know, but they weren't. They, Nielsen didn't count that same, so you had two separate numbers. So a Christian band, or a band that had Christian sales at all, MXPX or us or anybody like that, right. we would get the sound scan numbers that we would get, and it would be, oh, you guys have sold 50,000. And then you'd ask an agent or somebody that was going to take you on tour, you submitted for a band that was on Victory, and they would check your sound scans and see that you sold you know, 36,000. Right, and we say we sold fifty thousand, so it's thirty six. Okay, whatever. But I'm, and I'm weird. glad that we sold more. I'm glad that we had the outlet to make more money or get more fans because it matters. But I always thought that was weird that they were they were separated. But I think part of the notion is maybe this is the line of thinking. You might want to discredit a band who only gets sales because it happens to be on a family safe bookshelf somewhere. Maybe that's right. not really a fan that a mainstream band would want. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't. Maybe well, I have. I have. It. I have very limited interactions with that. But I mm-hmm. definitely like being out with MXPX and like people just going like, "I'll have one of everything." Got to support the Christian bands. Yep. And I'm just like, do you even know what they sound like? Like that's right. Really but that's weird what I'm saying. So if you were going to judge those from a real world point of view, maybe you'd like to discount the non-fans that purchased the record. That, <laughs> I think the idea. Although we've seen over time that some of those fans and people that grew up with that, of course, have a connection to it and are still some of our big fans today, even if they were, you know, that doesn't mean they aren't good fans or real people, yeah. but I think it's discredited, you know, widely, but really good for the Christian, you know, labels who are able to push a bunch of units to some it's super. It's super interesting to me. It's super interesting to me, and I hope you don't take offense to this. I won't. Because I guarantee it. I... Well, okay, so like when you start getting it, like there's like I okay, like religiously, like I went, I'm a recovering Catholic. I went to Catholic school for 12 mm-hmm. years, and uh, that doesn't play a big part in my life, but like punk rock, f- you know, Fugazi, and like those ethics are what kind of drive me and make me a good person, I think. Mm-hmm. But then as we start, like there's punk rock, there's this underground, like there's the mainstream radio, and then there's this punk rock stuff. And then as we got into it, it was more like, oh yeah, then there's other stuff. There's Christian underground. Yeah. Uh, if you get into hip hop, there's a whole, like that whole insane clown posse bullshit that goes on in Detroit. Right. That has its own industry, you know, and then mm-hmm. there's like jam bands that aren't on the radio. And it just, right. it's fascinating to me because it's these, all these little like niche, like they're all doing the same thing, yeah, but to a very specific audience. Yeah, well, I mean, then they all feel the same as you. Is it, we all feel DIY about it or punk yeah. rock about whatever term you you want to use? It DIY still feels, yeah, the, yeah, for sure. So it still feels that same way, or you know, it's community based and it's niche based. Mm-hmm. So, and then we've seen that just get bigger and bigger to where now people can actually know in a business sense. Maybe it's bastardized a little bit because now people know in a business sense that you might even be better off to focus on the niche first or find it and then market to it or build. It's you know. kind of like politics. Like you got to yeah. play to the base first and then right. expand beyond that. And hopefully, yeah. but I think there's, I mean, I would guess it's probably difficult if you are a quote unquote Christian band. And then you want to try and break out of it and go sure. kind of more mainstream. Yeah. The formula has always been, you had to try really, really, I mean, 
you have to try really, really, really hard to be to not be labeled, so, you know, kind of thing. Or, or you get you put off of stuff. So, you know, we got rejected from some tours and stuff. But the main thing we did was not... Uh, there's like an easier inroad for Christian bands where if you are a Christian band, you can get gigs at churches. Yeah. For, and if you if you say yes to those gigs, you'll get good... Or not good. I mean, at the time, it would seem like good money when you're starting. Hundreds of dollars. Uh, a couple hotel rooms. Great green rooms. Safe. Place to stay. Everybody's nice. And you got a bunch of youth group kids that are going to fake mosh for you because it's funny <laughs> and, but it's, it's a disaster and so you have to turn you have to say no we won't do that because if you say you will do that well that's all you'll do you're never going to go play for 50 well, that's, an, that a seems night. like it could be a pretty sweet it, pretty sweet life if you no, really it's, it's want to milk it it's not real though i mean it's hollow so you have to turn it down because you'll if you spend your time on that it won't be counted in the real world. So you, you won't have any touring history. You won't have any numbers. You won't have been seen by anybody that, that matters. You won't have relationships with anybody. So you can't do that. You have to, you know, at the beginning of your career at least, you have to say no to those things. So we just said no. We just, we can't. We did it a few times and said, this is awful. So whatever it means we, we in the real couple, world, we have to do We played do the a real couple uh, Christian coffee houses yeah, back in the day. Yeah, it's, like, it's no sneak, good. sneaking beers in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, and then later in your career, you can you can get a good money at a Christian festival, and you go play it. Nobody even knows you were there. It doesn't matter. So, and then if you know if you could skate it right, is or at Cornerstone least we, we is were Cornerstone to, still a thing? No, it fell apart eventually. Um, yeah, but it got bigger and bigger until they were paying more and more, and then you know it kind of took a dive about when the rest of the economy did. You know, okay, a like lot of festivals, yeah, something like that. So it went down. Did you ever hear the Appleseed Cast story about Cornerstone? No, I'd love to hear it though. They just kind of ended up playing there because they were friends. Do you know Jake Cardwell from CNC Drums? Is that Bill's son? Yeah, yeah Bill's son, Jake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was just friends with the Appleseed Cast guys, and his band Reflector was playing at Cornerstone, and he was like, oh, you guys are passing through. Why don't you you know, get on this festival? And the thing is, they're not Christian. Like, Aaron's Jewish. Yeah. Like they're, and they just didn't know what they were walking into. They didn't. They were just like a, thought it was a festival, and they ended up selling like fifteen hundred dollars in merch. Yeah. And and then so just kind of like I don't. Like you got to kind of like Aaron's like I'm really conflicted about this. I don't know how to how to feel about it. But yeah, it just, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, yeah, it's a sub subculture, and it just kind of it crossed over really at that time. I mean, there's a bunch of emo and hardcore bands that that just cross. It's, somehow there's a connection between Get Up Kids and Pedro the Lion and Zayo. You know what I mean? There just is. Well, I don't know it, what it is. It's just indie music at the time. From what I was told, because I didn't get into Pedro till later, that he, he he was kind of part of that scene and then stopped. Right. Yeah, he's, Zayo he's not a was Christian like a, at all anymore. Zayo was like a proper Christian metal band, right? But, yeah, originally, and then they they've changed. You know, they well, I guess in some ways, both of them were very dedicated, worshipy, singy Christian outwardly, and then have kind of both. Uh, Dave is no longer a Christian at all, and then the right. Zayo guys have they've changed members obviously a million times, but they they are nothing like they originally started to be, and they're more. Uh, you know, Scott, their guitar player, is an atheist. Or agnostic, and you know that now they're just totally are, are a different thing. Basically, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to like have that be the the one thing that def, like defines your band. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, it just it's such a like like I really like avocados, you know. And it's just like oh, you're that guy that likes avocado, you know. Like it's 
I don't know. It's just a weird well, thing for, to like. For something that seems like it's unrelated. So like, what if you were just like a band, but hey, every one of us up here on the stage, we love avocados. That's why we do what we do. And then other <laughs> people that, you know, the primary base you would have is people that like avocados that listen to your, whatever the sound of your music is, is like just as right. important as the fact that you like avocados. I agree. That's weird. But that's the way it is. <laughs> well, and then we would get these like fucking, like even back in the day before anybody knew. I mean, we're just, we're all, you know, kids from Kansas City. It's just like, we don't know anything about straight edge. Or, right. You know, it's just like, be like, oh, you guys aren't straight edge? I'm like, no. No one but, from Kansas City is straight edge. We invented barbecue for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all, these are just all these, the thing that all this has in common, vegan, vegan straight edge bands. I mean, it's all emergent uh, communities from, from that, yeah. from a time period. Like community is a word that is different. It's kind of different now, but I mean, at those times, there was just a few com- communities that were strong enough in an underground way to actually emerge into real culture. So, of course, they just crossed over and cross-pollinated. So, we'd be <coughs> on tour with a vegan straight-edge band, and it somehow made sense. I don't know. It's really interesting. It's it's just it's just interesting to me, too, because, like, I grew up religious, but it was never, it didn't have, like, there wasn't, like, a youth group culture to it. There wasn't, mm-hmm. like, a... Uh, and I've I've had many long conversations with uh, Dustin Kensrew when we've yep. toured together. We we have a tendency to uh, uh, drink bourbon and debate things. Yeah, into the night, and uh, just that like I didn't have that like what it sounds like you guys had and he had where just like there's this scene to like mm-hmm. kind of help build. Build True. you up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what, kind of what you come out of, and it's a crutch in a way. But you have to decide yeah. how you're going to manage it, or cater to it, or mm. or whatever. So it's a different ride for everybody. But it, I mean, ultimately, it's been if you skate it right, it can be helpful and not cheating. But you, nobody wants it to be cheating or fake. Well, I guess some people do, but I, you know, you don't want it to. Be well, there's got to be people who just like utilize who, it. You know, like there's got to be people who just like treat it like you're in a cover band that yeah, plays a, it. Yeah, it, you there know? is. There's a lot of that. And it's distasteful. So you don't want to be called that. You don't want to be that. You want to be associated uh, with it. But at the same know, time... Hey man. Gig's know, a gig. Gig's a gig. <laughs> right. Well, something you said a minute ago that I would, I would feel like... I feel like as an interviewer, I've got to... I really want to go back to is... Mm. Uh, you said that in, you go through these periods where, and you use the word dark. So that's mm-hmm. a bit, that's a good word for the interviewer to catch on, I think. But okay. I want to know what you meant by by dark. Like, is it that you're tied to the music itself, or the comments, or the or the the judgment of it? Oh, and, um, and, and how is it like a professional? Did you say did you just mean dark, like professionally, like I'm not into it, or actually affects you deeply in a personal way? Well, no. I mean, I think I'm just now in life, honestly accepting the fact that I definitely deal with some depression and mm-hmm. um, a decent amount of anxiety. And it um, it comes in waves, and I know what it is, and it doesn't ever overtake me to where I can't, you know what I mean? But it's just, I know it's there. Uh-huh. And sometimes when it's just like, like when my daughter was born and we left for the On a Wire tour, it was like a month after, it was my first kid, like a month after she was born, and I was just drinking myself to sleep mm-hmm. every day uh, and just being completely depressed. And um, meanwhile, that's like our biggest tour we've ever headlined. Yeah. But like I was, I was in such a just dark headspace and I get into these funks where it's just like, I miss my home and I, I like, especially like doing like, one of the reasons I'm so intrigued about doing these living room shows is because when I play solo, it's like, okay, I'll be at a bar, and it's like, okay, I'm hanging out by myself, 
backstage in a room with a bunch of dicks drawn on the wall. Exactly, yeah. And I'm like, I don't need this shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is not bringing me joy. Um, and so there's been a couple of times when, like, when... I think on that when you're talking about that Weezer situation, I was just burnt out because I was I wanted to stop playing these songs. We were getting frustrated creatively, and we needed to take a break and write new stuff and and be normal people. When the band broke up, I quit the band in 2004 because I needed a break, and I just was like, I need a break. And they were kind of like, Well, either we do this or we don't. And I was like, Well, then we don't. We don't because yeah. I I like I'm. I wrote a new Amsterdam song called Drinking in the Afternoon, and it's literally me sitting in a hotel room in Japan by myself in my boxer shorts, drinking a beer, <laughs> just like super, I'm like, and I'm, it's just this whole thing of like, this is what I get, I'm a successful musician, yep. living the dream, you know, missing my wife's eight months pregnant, and here I am on the other side of the world, and... You know, I just, I get, there are times, I I'm, I, don't, I haven't gotten it in a while, but there are times I just get sick of this. The music industry just sucks sometimes, you know what I mean? Like it's Yeah, just, I do. Everyone's, so, got a, everyone's got a fucking opinion, and, you know, I, I don't know. I'm in a good place right now in that, like, we're all getting along really well. There's no, like, expectation, like, oh, we need to make a new record, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like, we all do our own thing. Well, it's you, like a, you it's like a high school. To that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go no, ahead. no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Just that thing where, and I've seen every band have it, and we've had it too. Where it's the, there's that. Uh, it's not competitive, but it's the pushiness of the, the the whole climate of the band. Where if you're either in or you're out, we have to do all this. And who's the right. weakest person that wants to do the least or is trying to? You know, we gotta not have that. Like the culture of a band at, at some point feels that way. Like it's got to be all. You know, it's like well, it's looking like a, for a weakness in people or something. It's a marriage. Sure. I mean, it's a marriage. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I'm married to four sweaty dudes. It's an insecurity you know? though. Sometimes that the culture turns into. Well, we have to say yes to everything because. Who's gonna say? Who's the person? The weak person here? This right. Well, and we've gotten into that kind of this last time because we uh, in August we went on tour for like six weeks because the plan was okay. We have this window of time. You know, we're gonna do two weeks a month for our twenty year anniversary, and then uh, Rob, our bass player's wife, got pregnant, and he's like, "I need October and November off because she's gonna have a baby." So then we crammed six weeks into August and September, and. Now with things coming, like, oh, yeah, we want to go back to Europe. Because we went to Europe and we did the West Coast. So it's like, oh, we want to go back to Europe. And I'm like, no. Like, unless we get, like, a festival to, like, anchor it, I'm not going to go live in a van in Germany for two weeks. Yeah, it's rough. And you don't make as much money. Well, we never make as much money over there. Well, we do all right. But it's like, you got to, like, you can't just fly to Europe for two weeks with seven people and expect to, like, rent your back line and rent your van right, and, that's and right. make money. Unless you get like one good festival to like exactly. anchor it. And there's no festivals till the summer. So it's like, well, we can't go in April, you know, yeah. like, but we had to have that conversation. Cause now it's like Jim, our guitar player got his master's in geology over the last couple of years. And so he's, you know, looking for a government job, like a job job. And it's just like, well, okay, that means we're, That'll be that for him. We're just gonna be we're just gonna be weekenders then. You yeah. know what I mean? Which is fine with me. Like I'm I I 
<laughs> I love playing a good Get Up Kids Festival weekend. Yeah, weekends are good. <laughs> if you could get, if you had enough, I'd be like stand up comedians. That's the life, you know. They go do two that's what shows I, on the weekends. That's what I kind of want. I kind of want to do that, like with my next solo record. Just be like, all right, I'm going to go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, two weekends a month. That's a dream. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly. It. But so, but all the stuff that you're connecting uh, when you talk about darkness and depression, and anxiety, and waves, all that language is is very typical for somebody that experiences that stuff. But you seem to always only connect it to touring and be on the road and missing home. So what I'm wondering is, in these long stretches where you have been home, do do you not get those same feelings at all when you're home? Is home a um, cure for that? Well, yes, until I start thinking about like career stuff. If I could just be home and be home and like work in the garden and and cook for the family and get the kids to guitar lessons, then it gets kind of monotonous, but it never brings me anxiety. If farmhand paid $80 an hour, you'd be set and you don't think you would have depression and anxiety and you'd be totally happy. No, I'm I'm sure that's not <laughs> it would work. I'm 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 old enough to know that, you know, there's always well and that's how I know too that like these things come in waves. Like we played in New York, we had a sold out show at Irving Plaza, and I still had the same thing I had every time I go to Manhattan. I'm just like, Why am I here? I have no business being here. This isn't me. <laughs> Manhattan freaks you who, out. Who do I think No, it doesn't. Like I'm not scared of it, but yeah. I just get these like waves of like who the fuck do you think you are? You're hanging yeah. out with, you know. And then, like, you know, you go backstage and have a couple beers and you're fine. But it's just, it just, it's, it's never, it never ends for me. I just get the, and it's, it's exacerbated when it's like, if you're on like a shitty tour where you're oh, like, yeah. oh, uh, and there was a, a decent amount of depression like after Get Up Kids broke up where it's just like, okay, I'm, playing a place that get up kids sold out and there's a hundred people here yep and you know and that's normal probably right oh of course it's normal i mean most most people that quit bands seem to want to get back to it eventually here and we were in the kind of the first you guys are pretty early for it but think about it this way there's not been a lot of bands um like the whole reunion thing it didn't exist because there weren't small scale bands 50 30 years ago they were just giant bands that whatever happened this right. is the first time that we've had indie bands and small bands and medium-sized bands that have broken up and never even thought about the uh, possibility of a reunion and now it's almost matter of fact so it's a weird phenomenon to see well it's definitely you know, that uh, ba- bands do not break up yeah you know there's I mean? no such thing anymore. No. but there used to be but now and that I'm, we ha- you know just to be completely that- honest though like when i quit the band i i com- had complete purest intentions of like i never want to talk to you fuckers right. again like, you're an asshole, you're an asshole, you're an asshole. Like, but that was what year was that, though? There weren't any, no, what I'm saying is at that 2004. time, there, there wasn't reunions, though. There, that right. wasn't a thing then, so you couldn't have even foreseen, you know, you couldn't have seen it anyway. But in this day and age, if somebody, if a, a big band breaks up, even if they're saying, fuck you, fuck you, never want to talk yeah. to you again, it's still like, well, like you could still predict that this band's going to obviously do something in five years or whatever. Kind right. Of but yeah, in 2003, I, it wasn't that way. You wouldn't well, never, nobody else would have predicted it either. I, I I can't fault people for thinking that about uh, my band, but it, it doesn't feel that way to me. Like it's just kind of like, no, we just as long as we can spend time away from each other, then we actually get along pretty well. Yeah. Whenever we do come together, but I think we've figured out now that like I always tell people it's like a like a college reunion because these are the guys that I 
was with when I should have been in college. And it's like, yeah, we get together once every five years and we play the old songs and tell the old stories and drink some beers together. But then we all fuck off and do our own thing, you know, and we get away from each other. That's probably healthier when you're in your 30s with kids and families anyway. It's more fun. I mean, I, I, I totally get all that. All that too. So, but what is the thing about this? I mean, what is it with all this creating stuff business, doing your podcast, multiple side projects? Are you and James are doing something? Is that right? Uh, we did an EP a little while ago. I don't know. He's got some stuff going on now that he might be in. He lives in New York. Uh-huh. He might be in Kansas City for a while. So I'm going to be cool. trying to see if, he, if he'll want to do some stuff. But, but what is the, 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 you know, the, the thing that makes that, that you want to be, be creative about? What's the point of, of all this creating stuff? Uh, I mean, my favorite, very favorite thing about being a songwriter is that moment when you've written something and it's stuck in your head, but no one else has ever heard it. Oh, that's good. And I'm like yeah. walking around the house kind of going like, and even my kids are like, what are you singing? And I'm like, yeah. oh, I just, I wrote this song and it's stuck in my head. Yeah. And to me, that's like... Uh, you know, I, all the other aspects, like I, I, I can lose myself in, in being an engineer and, and recording a song, but like that little moment is what kind of makes it, it's a little bit of magic. If and you, you said that sound you, you would never be able to stop doing Like that's why you no, say you create no matter what. Well, and that's why like doing these like custom songs for people that I've been doing the last couple of years, I have to like physically shut the store so that I can write songs for myself. Yeah. Because otherwise it's like, I'm always hanging out over there and, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to throw away something that, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. and not, not to say that like those songs aren't special. They're just, they're, they're more like factory work. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, but, but that's what I think I, I respect that because you're not hoarding your creativity. Like you can write five songs. If I told you you had to write two songs to the rest of today, you could do it. And oh, then, I recorded, I recorded six downright songs today. Yeah, that's that's amazing. What I'm saying is you could continue to do it and you're not losing resources, you're only gaining skill. So why hoard that resource? You go, uh oh, I've got to write a get up kids album in eighteen months, so I better save my creativity. That's not actually right. You'd be better off to just write a song every day and give them all away for, for six months and then start writing. You know, you yeah, wouldn't have wasted as, your ideas really. As long as you you don't get like burnt out on that and become like sure, super sure. formulaic and then you're like I do think creativity is like a muscle that you have to to yep. exercise. Uh, what do they say about comedy writers? It's like rule number one: get your ass in the chair and like start working. Like you can't just. I used to be someone who thought that creativity came and kind of like when I was much younger, like kind of came from somewhere. But now I realize that it's just like I have to make it. Like I have to build it. Yeah, you know, in order to make it work. So yeah, you just had to you had to do something. So last thing I want to ask is. When you think about all this creativity and stuff you're putting in the world, mm-hmm. this is kind of a philosophical question, but would you rather would you trade more success, notoriety, money, and influence now? But uh, when you die, your name, Matt Pryor, is no longer attributed to your works or contributions. So I get to be famous but not remembered? Exactly. And I'm not saying you're, and your work remains, but not, you're not attributed to it. Like, it's not like it's removed from the world. People still, but just you, your legacy part of it is not there. So, but in the meantime, you could, you would, ha- you would achieve more. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a weird question because like legacy doesn't really mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like we talk about 
well, I don't know. There's been a lot of death in my life this last year. And uh, so my wife and I talk about it, that a lot. And I know that I'm going to go before she does. And I'm like, just, you know, scatter me over the Kansas River. And she's like, no, I want to have somewhere I can go. And there are going to be other people who want to have somewhere they can go and pay their respects to you. And I'm like, okay, that's it. It's a weird thing. So, like, I have a hard time being like, why would anybody want to do that? <laughs> you yeah. know, like, um, but then at the same time, like, I don't know, the money's not that important to me either. As long as uh, I've been using the analogy in interviews lately where it's like, I want to be like the little mom and pop coffee shop that has good product, good ambiance. Mm hmm. Everybody who works there makes a living. I can take care of. I can keep the lights on. I can pay for my house, and er everything's good. I don't need to be Starbucks, you know. Like you know what I mean. Like I don't have those mm -hmm. ambitions. I just I just want to run my small company and make a living off of it. So, yeah, I don't see those two things as being very good trade offs. Like I'm not really that interested in either of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but okay, but that's kind of nice though. So you're saying you would like to have the nice coffee shop, the nice everything, and you're not really that. Uh, well, that's what I'm trying to get at. So, what what is your motivation then? If it's so, you'd be happy to have that coffee shop and stuff, even if you weren't even known as the proprietor. Still, you still would just have. You would find personally the value in just the quality of the things well, there. Well, I personally. guess I, I probably have some ego that I'm not acknowledging, mm -hmm. uh, just because that's my my Midwestern sensibilities, you know, uh -huh. like I, even when people are like, Oh, you should hear these guys are like totally ripping your band off. And I'm like, well, I mean, we rip people off too. <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's not in the, whenever people have said that to me, I'm always like, I don't, you're really crazy. But then when you meet people who actually say that about themselves, mm -hmm. like they, and I'm like, dude, just fucking rock and roll. There's only so many chords on a guitar. Like you can't, yeah. um, just that arrogance like drives me nuts. Sure, but but, but I mean, I mean I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have a little. What is I have a little bit of motivations it. there. You know, like you said, you know, like maybe you answer that with the creative. Like what what makes you create the stuff? And you you seem to kind of be self satisfied with the thing that you create. It seems yeah. to be maybe the angle of of where your drive and motivations really are, not the acceptance of other people, and certainly not the money and things like that, nor the legacy. I mean, can you find anything in there that is your your your? I'm your sure. Motivation? I'm sure it's there. I'm sure. I don't know that my legacy is a motivator. Mm -hmm. I think. I guess if I'm being completely honest, it would be nice to at least be. You know, you always think about like what people would say at your funeral. Uh huh. And I, I'd like people to say something nice <laughs> you know like <laughs> of course it was like of course prior helped invent emo and was a dick <laughs> <laughs> the best best emo most emo guy of all time He's shitty most, person Not most, emo, <laughs> most emo asshole i ever met <laughs> no funny. i just i you know i i guess i'd i'd uh, it, that's a hard one for me because it, it means I have to be like almost like self-promoting and be like, sure. no, I want to be remembered. I'm like, well, no, no, yeah, that's, that's I guess why I, I do. It's kind of interesting as a question because, I mean, you know, you, it's clear that you have a, a real strong desire to 
to create and be out there and, and do it. So I, I'm, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. So I just think it's interesting to try to get in there just a little bit and see if you could identify what it is for you. I think it's way different for everybody, of course. You know, yeah. Some people would definitely take money and take their name off of everything. Some people just want to be I will validated say, and they don't care about money. You know, During that time period when the kind of vagrant records thing was happening and like saves was blowing up and dashboard was blowing up, and I was like sitting at home, like we, when we went on tour with Dashboard Confessional on this Honda Civic tour, I would look at Chris and I would look at his day and I would be like, fuck this. This is what you get when you win. Uh-huh. Like you have to go do like press junkets and meet and greets with like industry people. And, and I was just like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> like just, so I guess in that sense, I've, I've kind of seen the money side of it but i mean I, I guess i'm lucky enough too that like like i think i'll always have a career just because get up mm-hmm. kids got to a certain point and we can you know i'm lucky that we can go out for two weeks and i can come home and not have to work for a couple months yes yeah. you know so I don't know. That's Man, a re- you've got I, me really thinking about myself now. I'm gonna well, do some, good, good. I, well, I'm I mean, gonna go it's take a, it's a shower a, and do some soul searching. <laughs> well, it's a privilege for me to hear somebody like you that is is influential to me. I'll just say it that way. Just to me, you're influential. So to hear you be able to process some of that out loud is kind of an honor to me. So thank you for doing it, Matt. I yeah, of course. It. So that's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, you know what? I want to have you on on my podcast next. All right. I'd love to do it anytime. Got to start doing this cross promoting. Sure. Stuff anyway. <laughs> well, enjoy your off day. And, uh, you know, you got my number, so text me anytime. Okay. I'm going to put this up probably tomorrow night. Okay. All right. Enjoy it, Matt. Talk to you soon. Cool. Talk to you later, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.